Hola, I am Professor Jorge Leal, historian at the University of California, Riverside, and this is the discursive power of rock en español and the desire for democracy. Oh, el rock en español y el anhelo democrático para más corto. Hello, everyone. I am Citlali Sosa Riddell, and I am also a historian, professor at California University of San Marcos, and I uh, welcome you to our podcast. Now that we have done five episodes, we figured to record this one to reflect a bit on some of the questions that have come up during and after the recording of our first episodes that we have created among ourselves, those questions that we bounce back after listening to each other's episodes, and also folks like you that have been listening and sending us your questions. So let's get this conversation started. Professor Sosarido, you have created several episodes on El Rock Nacional Argentino. And I wanted to ask you, what does rock in Espanol mean to you personally and also academically? You know what? Thank you, Jorge, because this is something that I think was always kind of strange for me because I am um, not an immigrant. I come from um, a Mexican background, uh, but my family has been here for a little over 100 years at this point. So for me, rock in Espanol wouldn't seem like something that would really make sense for my own interest. But I do remember that in in the 1990s, when I was in college, uh, hearing about rock and español and the first time I heard it and how much that meant to me, uh, because I think so much of the music, uh, which was really at that point Mexican rock and español, uh, like Café Tacuba, for example, what I was really struck by was how much it sounded like a lot of the regional Mexican music, um, which I grew up on, and. So it felt like a kind of a mixture of the music that I liked from my family and from growing up to also kind of the music that I listened to that was more, um, I don't know, I mean, we'll call it rock in a general way, but I also was a big a big new wave um, fan growing up too. So it, it felt like an interesting mix of these parts of my, my person that had oftentimes felt like very separate. So I think that's what really was exciting for me. Uh, in terms of the academic side... I think, you know, meeting you and hearing about your interest in studying rock and español, it didn't seem like something I could ever study. I also study the 19th century, so it feels like something very contemporary and cool, way beyond what, what we traditionally study. So you have, of course, here Jorge, who studies very cool contemporary stuff as a historian. And, and I think it's really inspired me to think about ways to connect issues of trying to seek democracy in early Latin America, right? Because they study 1820s to the 1850s. And, and then thinking about those questions of democracy today, right? How are we constantly in a quest to try to make countries the best and try to find and create democracies? That's why I'm fascinated by Rock and España. Your work is about the 19th century borderlands, the borderlands between Mexico and the U.S., the exchange of ideas and political beliefs between Latin America and the U.S., but also there was a sense of nostalgia as what we now know as the American Southwest, Texas, New Mexico, obviously California, uh, become part of the, U of the United States. And they are broken off from uh, Mexico and by extension, the Americas. So I want to ask you, since there's a thread in Broken Español now, how it's been discussed, how it's been consumed about nostalgia or just having merely a nostalgic um, aspect to it. How does nostalgia yeah. fit in your work? How do you see nostalgia working out in rock and español? Yeah, I noticed that in the article that you wrote, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. 
so in order so you can talk about it a little bit more, but you do mention nostalgia, and I know you personally have always been bothered by the idea of nostalgia. And and it struck me because when I looked at how in you know California we're fascinated by like this idea of like the Spanish past or the Mexican past, and we think about it as a as a nostalgia. Uh, one of the ways that historians have have worked on thinking about that is to challenge like let's let's look at what's real, not what our nostalgia tells us. And as I started to study this, I realized that that I really love nostalgia as a as a concept, and it's not something that we should try to boot out of everybody's system because imagine if you had to get rid of a nostalgia for your family, for your your loved ones who have moved on and passed away, or for foods that we grew up on, or for memories that we have. To get rid of our nostalgia would take away so much of who we are. It would take away from our sense of cultural preservation. It would take away from our heritage. It would take away from our um, sense of self, right? And we know that there are dangerous ways that nostalgia can be used uh, because it can be used to to kind of challenge other people's rights. But there's a lot of good to think about in terms of nostalgia. So I do think that it's it has a negative connotation. Sometimes we think about it as, oh, you're just stuck in the past. Like, why can't you like new music or something? Uh, like, and new rock in español, right? Or why aren't you into only uh, what's what's popular today? But I think... For looking at rock and español and keeping it in mind as something that people we still love from our generation and the new generations are are liking it and loving it, uh, I think we can think about nostalgia in a much broader way, which is that it's it's a way to build community and it's a way to uh, enhance thinking about these questions of what does it mean to be part of a Latino community or a Latin American community or the Latinx broader world, right? Uh, and so it's it's continuing to create new and exciting questions. It's... I guess you're talking about me in this sense. Uh, and I'll contribute to that nostalgia for me. Um, it can be productive. It can be as a as a place where we launch onto new. Mm-hmm. Um, new ideas based on the past, right? And also to connect us to the past, to connect us to the people that we met in our past. Um, but I also, but for me, it's also important to not just, uh, how, uh, I mean, there's this, um, in, in history, we talk about declinism, which is to think that every um, past era was better than our era. And that's why I push mm-hmm. back against that kind of nostalgia, the stuff that can be sterile, that can not, that, that, that for us is just, oh, we're thinking that everything in the past was better. And now there's not, there's uh, whatever new music, whatever new cultural expressions are happening. It's not as cool as it was. Um, and for me, I think it's good to think of obviously the past. I'm a historian. Um, as a point of inspiration, but also as a point of departure. And if that, that informs, you know, what we can create in the present. And that's where I do see uh, nostalgia as being um, useful. I think that for me, in terms of rock and español, this is uh, uh, cover bands might just be kind of just reiterating that nostalgia. But if from that, you know, new moments are created, new music is created, I'm all for it. And I feel that um, in the next... Um, face of our podcast series where we'll be talking about um, the legacies of rock and español 
with people in this generation that have encountered Broken Español now from an intergenerational perspective through their parents, through their tios, tias, and also how they make their own memories based on that, um, those songs, new meanings to those songs. I feel that that's where I find that nostalgia is um, productive. And it, not only productive in the capital of sense, but that is able to <laughs> generate, yeah, it's able to generate uh, something new and, and also to tell something about the now. Yeah, like emotionally productive, right? <laughs> yes. No, I think you, I think you uh, point out some of the problems of nostalgia. And it is a little bit scary, right? Because I think when we, as we get older, we think about, am I just living in the past? And and I know this is a very specific to music example, but this is something that I like to do is I like to listen to Rocan Español, for example, music of my younger era, but I also like to make sure to to listen to what's in the contemporary zeitgeist, right? I want to know what music is is happening today. I want to know reggaeton and I want to know what's popular in, in contemporary, like Rocan Español, let's call it. Uh, so I think that's my way of kind of balancing those, right? Because those are real issues that we don't want to spend our time thinking, was the past always better, right? And, and I don't want to th- ever say that. Like, I don't think that the that this era of the 1990s and the 2000s was better than it is today. Or, But I can imagine that those are moments that should be celebrated. And that's one of the things that we're thinking about is the celebration of, of countries coming out of dictatorships, right? And, and the potential that they have. And we as historians want to think about how we can celebrate eras without assuming that they're always better, but looking at the good that came out of those periods and why, what we can learn today. So one of the things I've always wondered, since you grew up in Mexico and you probably ex- definitely experienced Rock en Español before I did, what is kind of the first bands that you remember, or your most favorite earliest band, and why did you get in, into it? Since I mentioned when I uh, came on Rock en Español and... You know, my first encountered Café Tacuba, for example. What was yours? Wow, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, the first song and the first band I listened to that was Rock en Español that um, really um, grabbed me was Enanitos Verdes. Enanitos <laughs> um, Verdes, La Muralla. And I just really, really liked them. And, and I didn't know where they were coming from. I just knew that the beat was very rock, very quote-unquote modern and that it was in Spanish and and so this is the era before we could search everything on on a search engine so it was like who's this you know me going to different record stores and then finding that there was this thing called rock en español in terms of the Mexican rock and rock the rock mexicano I do remember being in la secundaria in middle school and a friend going to a friend's house and said, look, I have this record, but we can only play it with headphones because, you know, it says bad words. And it says, you know, this, uh, yes. Uh, and it says this uh, messages that the government doesn't want us to hear. Oh. I'm sure it wasn't as, you know, yeah, but it wasn't as um, dangerous as he made it seem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was El Tri. And El Tri, you know, like doing some albures and, be, you know, being very uh, um, homophobic, I got to say. But and he would he would do this kind of like albures in the live in the live their live performances that then they would record and that they would make it into a record and I remember just sitting with like headphones like huge you know cans with the uh, with the wire and the whole thing 
and just listening to that, it just, you know, for me, it was like, oh my God, I'm doing something, you know, uh, forbidden, you know, as the kids are saying now, los pasos prohibidos, it was like the, you know, like the discos prohibidos. Uh, and so, but I had no context of, you know, why was it that it was censored? It was, uh, I just knew that it, I, I wasn't supposed to be listening to that in public or, you know, loud. And so those are the two um, songs that, you know, like I first, um, Learn, but then they do both of them have um, larger historical context as I l very soon later f come, came to find out. So, for example, in Anitos Verdes, they have a cover by El Extraño del Pelo Largo, uh, which is like one of the first rock in Espanol or rock Argentino rather songs from the 60s. And it's about talking about like a long haired guy and mm -hmm. at a moment that that was counterculture, countercultural. Mm -hmm. And then with El Tri. Even though they came from middle class backgrounds, like have you, you know, like they gravitated towards this working class um, a scene that was underground and that was heavily uh, police and um, in in the quote unquote shanty towns of Mexico City in the periphery um, and was persecuted. Like the, not necessarily the three, but the, the fans were always seen as the gang members. They, they were always seen as the criminals in the 80s with all the different Panchitos um, gangs. And so being a punk in uh, the Me Mexican city, working poor, working class neighborhoods um, was being seen as a criminal, as, an, as an, a gang member. So those are later on, I understood why rock and Español was defined in its own ways. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. I only, I don't know if I've ever asked you that before. When you, how you got started on Rock and Español. I will say one thing, I don't know if I got into it enough, but for me, uh, I think the first thing that I heard was rock, was a uh, Café Tacuba's uh, Re, and then um, Shakira, of course, but I don't know, you know, let's have we decided if we're calling her first and second albums like Rock and Español, I don't know. But, um, I think Café Tacuba's Re was really, under, really, I think in a way that I got so excited about the genre was because it reminded me of a mixture of like, uh, like I said, Mexican regional music and also folk folkloric music, like music that I grew up doing, uh, dancing to in, in Bada Folklorico. And, and then, and then having these like statements about, I think politics but also about their city life, like of what it was like to be in Mexico City. And my family lives in Mexico City. And so, I, you know, I had visited and I think that was very, I think um, it was powerful, right, to think about that connection between uh, us and them and to be able to see it in music. And then and then when I learned that, you know, there was kind of a gateway to, to more, say, Café Tacuba songs that were they were doing covers of other Latin American music that I didn't know, that was also really exciting because then it opened up the whole, a bunch of different genres because they were doing, I think, with Red and their next album, like they're looking at a lot of older genres and, I don't know, modernizing them, let's say, for lack of a better term here in a way that made me want to go look in, back and learn more and get into um, other styles and, and earlier periods. And, and even, like, the people who were really big in their native countries and maybe I didn't know about. And so I thought that was uh, such a great gateway, you know, to thinking about music. Yes, you're referencing Avalancha de Exitos that comes out in 1997. And, right. 
And so this is what I find really fascinating about the genre that, you know, this is uh, nostalgia, but in a productive way, right? Because they were covering uh, songs from the 70s, 80s, um, either from really known artists like Leo Dan or 90s uh, uh, Juan Luis Guerra from República Dominicana. And also some like very underground uh, bands uh, from, that they grew up with, like in the also the 90s. So this is like what I find really interesting, that it's not just music for the music's sake, but it teaches us new things. Or th- uh, if At first, it just teaches us about other other bands, other artists, and or other cultural um, currents. Now I want to ask you about um, the preparing and the writing yeah. of these uh, episodes that you have done which deal with in different facets of the rock nacional argentino, what is something new or actually surprising that you have learned um, or even remember as you have been preparing for these episodes? Oh, man, there's a couple of things. So one, I mean, thinking, and, and this reminded me when you told me right now, that, like kind of this sense of listening to it in a world in which you're not supposed to be or it's wildly against the government. Uh, I think it's such an important contrast to think about in terms of how I listened to Roca en Español, was never with that sense of fear or concern that I was challenging the government in any way. Uh, and I think that that was a really important reminder in the music, thinking about what it was really like for people to be afraid, right? Or to, And then to think about how... Uh, I think I was really struck in the research in terms of how much um, there was this ideas you mentioned of like people who had long hair were gang members or were part of um you know were were a problem for society right that these roqueros were a problem and and it reminded me of my older family members who grew up in the 1960s and who would talk about that in terms of how they were treated in as 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 hippies right but to see that connection and then to read about how i read about how the the American hippies were seen as impacting and creating rockeros in, in Latin America and that they were the, they were the fault. And so that when the American hippies went to Mexico to, you know, I don't know, drop acid or something, whatever they you know, to, to travel there, that they were bringing this bad American culture. And, and I think really too, thinking about how the long hair was talked about as such a, was this really gender problematic gender issue that they were bringing like homosexuality and I think I had never really considered why the long hair was such an issue, why it was on the table as this problematic thing. To me, it was just kind of like hippies have long hair, right? And and I never thought about those big questions in the 19... I guess we're looking at the 60s to the 1990s, really, because uh, from the period of the hippies in the U.S. to the hippies and the kind of rockeros in, in, in Latin America. So I think that that gendered issue, and now that we're talking about that so much in this in our contemporary society, to think about how this has been an ongoing discussion, right, um, was really important. I think hard-hitting. Mm-hmm. I, I would add about the gender, yes. I mean, the, the rockeros were seen as a threat to the status quo, to societal status quo, but also they were breaking the gender binary. And by having right. long hair, by dressing androgynously. And that continues in, in Los Angeles, in 1990s Los Angeles. A lot of the bands dress in uh, with skirts or quills, uh, paint the, the, their nails. And uh, they, they were not necessarily super hip to queer theory necessarily. And, but there was that push against um, straight heteronormative norms, um, yeah. And I think that 
Yeah. yeah and, you, and I think that that's something that... that... And it reminds you that how much, I think, when you point out that they didn't know about queer theory, but it reminds you how that stuff can happen on the ground, and maybe people don't necessarily know that they're doing it with other people together, but that it's that it actually is where many of this kind of cultural changes happen. Those shifts happen in, with everyday people. And not to not to make it as a very idyllic, super you know, like uh, gender and queer inclusive and super welcoming. There was definitely still homophobia in the in the scene, but there was a possibility of inclusion. And also the mm -hmm. just the one the of pushing against those very strict uh, gender norms and that. Uh, Yeah. That's something surprising to me when I started thinking about it, um, when I started um, researching these lyrics. For example, with Los Olvidados, a band that I know that I, you know, full disclosure, I work with. Jose Vergara is part of our podcast as the director of Music Wheel and the Miramonte um, a music program. But they do have a, um, a phrase, which is, en, en la sunset me atasco un joto. And I, for the longest time, I my brain wanted to think that it was Matas con Hot Dog as the song. And I had to go to the composer, Jose, Jorge Infante, and ask him, is it a hot dog or hoto? He's like, no, it's a hot, a hoto, like a queer, a gay dude. Because I was talking about this friend that he would, you know, he was an immigrant and he would explore his queer desires on, on weekends. Uh, and for him, it was like, okay, if I, if I don't hook up with a girl, I'll hook up with a guy. And for me, it was just shocking. But also, it talks about this, uh, the immigrant experience has also been a moment of exploration. And I, mm. uh, so there's a, there's a lot of that uh, um, that I think we can think of uh, in terms of the how these lyrics and the music or just this aesthetics, this style, pushes against um, mm -hmm. um, gender norms, be it politically, you know, like with yeah. explicit messages, be it also um, gender class um so there's there are many different aspects of it yeah and i and i saw a lot of the pushback from the conservative world of, of latin america and how they were constantly talking about how this this long hair was such a sign that that the patriarchal family was being challenged in mexico and in latin america and that this was a real problem and it was all the u.s's fault right so i thought that was fascinating but yeah great point And also women wearing uh, pants, I mean, which is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, very everyday, but, you know, short hair. Like, that was like, oh, why, why is it that these women that go to these shows have short hair, right? I mean, it, 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 there are things that are, are so basic yeah. now, like, so, uh, but at the time, you know, you would, this is the place where you would be welcome and you would be celebrated for doing that, which mm -hmm. was not everywhere else. So we have some listener questions that we've actually gotten uh And feel free to also send us questions on the on our um, Instagram. So, what are the questions that we have? Um, what does the future of rock en español look like? Is our first question. We're actually going to be tackling this with um, with the youth, <laughs> uh, with some Gen Z uh, um, students that I have met and that are really big rock en español fans in in the press, and so. Uh, in the next episodes, we'll be hearing a bit of, you know, what does Rock en Español look like? I would say that I get this question plenty, which is like, hmm. what happened to Rock en Español? Why, why did it die? I don't think it died. It's just we changed the names. Uh, it became niche in terms of like the, it, it broke into different genres. Or we now understand it as a confluence of different genres. Perhaps, you know, also Rock en Español does not 
really, as a term, does not encapsulate the diversity of this genre. And so the future continues to be quite interesting, I would say, because even reggaeton and mm -hmm. some reggaeton songs are informed by rock and español. Or the, you know, one, the desire to sing your uh, about your life, your truth, or your desires in in español, which you know, before everybody felt like they had to sing in English to do the crossover. And yes, we can think of yeah. Bad Bunny that he, for the most part, has done it in Spanish, in español. And I think that's a good point, Jorge, because the the whole point of rock en español was that explicit use of Spanish. It wasn't just like accidentally using Spanish, or using Spanish here and there, but the explicit use of Spanish in in a way to make a point to challenge the kind of English hegemony or like the fact that it's everything has to be in English. So yeah, I think you're very right that we can think about the impact in, in a number of ways, right? Through contemporary reggaeton or to even contemporary, like the broad swath of all different kinds of, let's say rock music. I always want to call it that, right? And also the culture, the Latin American cultural um, richness that we see being expressed, mapped out, in different songs and throughout different music genres in Latin America and beyond. So that's what I feel that the rock and, you know, like we might not think of rock and español in those ways, but it continues to inform. So that's my answer to that question. Yeah. You know what I also want to say too? I think that the fact that the, the use of Spanish uh, has become so normalized with like reggaeton that to have the term rock and español might almost be redundant, right? And I think that that's great, the success of this. Like, we don't have to call it in Espanol. It's already implied that mm -hmm. if it comes from Latin America or from U.S. Latinx communities, it can be in Espanol. And that, and whichever way of Espanol mm -hmm. is, Spanglish, you know, like, um, that's, you know, like, having that cultural connection and, and that cultural inspiration or influence, influence I think that that's what makes it rock in Espanol. I agree. And I love that it kind of leads us into the last question or into the next question, which is that what's the legacy of rock and español in L.A. in particular? I think that this is uh, also a very interesting question. Thank you for sending it, uh, listeners like you. <laughs> what's a legacy? Well, we're <laughs> recording this in summer 2023. Café Tacuba has had two sold out shows at the Hollywood Bowl. Natalia Furcada is coming. Little Jesus played in Highland Park. División Miluscula uh, played at the Roxy. Um, Auténticos Decadentes and Cadillacs are also playing the ball. And it's like just like an everyday thing, like a normal thing. Concert season, you'll see uh, these bands from Latin America uh, playing at the major venues in throughout Hollywood and throughout Southern California. Uh, that's one legacy, one that mm -hmm. we're firmly part of the music landscape of Southern California and also all these other festivals, uh, mm -hmm. the Besame Mucho festivals before La, uh, La Tocada, Reventón. And mm -hmm. those, those are the legacies. I mean, like that's the music that people come to hear, um, be it in a festival setting or also places like Club Nocturno or all these other uh, Club Rock, rock and Español um, nightclubs. I mean, that's the legacy, right? Uh, and now that is an intergenerational legacy where parents uh, who grew up with this music share with the, the, the music with uh, their children. And I think one is just kind of the love for the music and then also the fact that it's in Spanish. 
um, connects to their culture. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think that, and if there's something that we are trying to share with the, in in our podcast is how what is you know what what other meanings can we draw from this music? It brought from the political moment of the 70s, 80s, 90s in Latin America, but also how does this music allows people instead of just kind of like mm, going to the shadows, but to be explicit about their um, and their existence in the U.S. as U.S. Latinas, but also a demand advocate for their rights at a time, which is the 2023, but it could have been the 90s or the 80s where their rights are constantly under attack and their livelihoods. So that's where I, I think that those are the legacies that Rock and Español continues to have in L.A. And if we think of L.A. as Latin America, in Latin America as well. Yeah, I agree. That's wonderful. So, Jorge, you recently were interviewed for a number of articles here in Southern California, and I was curious if there's anything that you weren't able to add to your articles because, you know, you have to cut everything down for size for for uh, newspapers. You can only say so much, both me in, in the piece in the Delos at the Los Angeles Times, which I'm you know, uh, very glad and thankful that they asked me to contribute, and also the Daily News interview. I, I think one thing is just to reiterate my, my thanks and my appreciation and admiration to, um, to, to folks that have collaborated, like in yourself, you know, one of the main collaborators of uh, our podcast series, uh, you, Dr. Citlali Sosaridel, that have created um, three episodes, really interesting episodes about el rock nacional argentino. And ha you, you have really delved as a main collaborator in, in, in this history and the context. And, and also I want to um, acknowledge our um, other contributors, such as Jose Vergara uh, from the Miramonte Music Program and his amazing students that have been recording these new versions of rock and español classics, Jose Anguiano from Cal State LA, And also the upcoming, you'll hear them, um, students, students from UCR, uh, and also peer students such as Emilia Parodi. Another thing that I think I didn't quite um, get to in the articles and that we have been thinking plenty is who is the audience, right? Like, so, and why is it that we're uh, recording and creating a rock and español podcast in English, in English, right? Um, and We just want to be explicit on the fact that we think of this podcast as an entry point, as a primer for second, third, later generations uh, who have grown up in the U.S. Um, listen to this uh, music in, in Espanol, but whose first language is English or a combination English and Spanish. And this allows, hopefully, uh, them to have a, a greater context in Uh, in their conversational language, which, which is English. Uh, shout out to the Spanglish crowd and to the Nosabo kids, because, you know, we're all There here. You go. And uh, I want to thank everybody for coming and for listening. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, Professor Citlali Sosa Rodel, and we uh, hope to engage with you more. Check us out on Instagram. Thank you, Professor Sosa Rodel, for taking the time to ask some of these questions and also ask some very interesting questions in this episode. Well, this has been the discursive power of rock en español and the desire for democracy. O el rock en español y el anhelo democrático. We'll be back with new episodes to discuss the intergenerational legacies and the meanings of some of these key rock en español songs for US Latinas. Also, we'll get to hear some new versions 
of the songs performed by the students of the Miramonte Music Program. So make sure to share this podcast feed with your friends, your tias, tios, cousins, and tune in. New episodes on Wednesdays this summer 2023. This podcast is supported by the University of California Humanities Research Institute. We are very thankful for their support. Also, we are very thankful for you listening in. Hasta pronto.